morning. My name is John. If I haven't uh, met you yet, uh, I have the honor of being one of the pastors here, and I'm uh, very grateful that you're joining us this morning. We're in a series on uh, Genesis 2 and 3, and uh, we've spent the last uh, several weeks looking at these passages together. So we spent two weeks kind of ground clearing, which is just asking, what is this uh, literature? And we noticed that it's ancient literature, so we have to do a little bit of mental gymnastics to get ourselves into the place to understand what's being said. And then uh, we looked at the human job description that's, that's posted in this uh, passage the last few weeks. So we started to, by seeing that in Genesis 2, it talks about humans as dirt and divine breath. Both of these things are important to what it means to be human. And that means, as we just prayed, that there's a connection to other things that are created from the dirt, to this world, to the rivers, to the plants, to all the different things that God has created. And so our job description includes abiding and shamaring, it says in Genesis 2, serving and keeping this world that God has given us. The job description is, is being a royal priest, like the priests would care for the temple, we are to care for this world. And then finally, Mitch last week preached on us being partners, that we are part of what it means to be human is that we are called to partner with God in the world, but also to partner with each other in various different ways. So today we're moving on to our next section of text, and we're going to look at the test that's uh, posed in this chapter, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And this morning we're going to try to do three things. We're going to look at the geography of this garden, Secondly, we're going to look at why God saying no to us might be actually a good thing. And then finally, we're going to listen to some Radiohead. So, a little something for everybody this morning. So, we're going to pick up the story in verse 8. We're going to go through. There's a couple copies. If you want a paper copy of the text that we're looking at, there's a couple paper copies in the back. But all of the text will be up here on the screen. So, verse 8. And Yahweh Elohim planted a garden in Eden towards the east. So here we start to see a picture of what's, what's happening. If you remember the earlier passage, of there's a dry ground that was created by God. And there was no plants because there was no humans. And so what we see is now the next step, a smaller portion of land. There's this place that's called Eden that's created inside the dry land. And it doesn't say where it came from or why it's there. It just is there. And interestingly, the word means delicacy or delight, in Hebrew, but when it got translated into Greek, the word they used is paradisos, or paradise. So when Jesus on the cross says to, to the uh, thief, today you will with, be with me in paradise, this is what he's saying. He's using the same word as here as Eden. He's drawing a line back to that moment in time. And then within Eden, there is a garden. So we've got dry land, within dry land is Eden, and then there is this garden within Eden. So we're starting to get a picture of what's happening, this narrowing of the scope. So Yahweh planted a garden in Eden towards the east, and it says, he placed the human there whom he had formed. So the human being uh, that is created, or the human that's created, goes on a similar trajectory to the garden. He starts being made of dust, and now he's being placed into the garden. He's moving towards the center. Verse 9, And Yahweh Elohim caused to sprout from the ground every tree that is desirable to sight and good for eating. So what's with this focus on trees? Again, we're reminding ourselves that this is ancient literature, so we need some guides to help us understand what the ancients would have heard in this passage. So listen to uh, William Osborne, who wrote this very exciting book called Trees and Kings. I know you all have it on your shelves, but I'll just read from it for us this morning. As any astute tourist quickly observes, the landscape of much of the Near East is predominantly stark and barren. The land is comprised of innumerable shades of brown, with only brief interjections of green and blue. 
This is very different than Vancouver. If you've flown into Vancouver recently, you'll know that there's just, it just looks like trees everywhere, mountains, ocean. The, the east, uh, the, the place that they're talking about here, the Near East, is, is much different. It's very barren. It's very brown. And the higher in elevation one goes, the greener the picture becomes. So consequently, mountains and rivers, along with forests that adorn them, seem to be natural focal points of anyone who lives or travels in the Near East. The ancient people, from the remote western world of Egypt to the eastern river of the marshes of Babylonia, were all agrarian cultures, whose livelihood was found and maintained among the shade, fruit, shelter, and the beauty of their trees. As a result, there can be little doubt that this lifestyle had a significant effect on those ancient cultures and the way that they perceived the world. And here is the important sentence. Trees, then, were some of the most sacred elements in ancient Near Eastern civilizations. Into the context that Genesis 2 is being written, trees and gardens and forests were all sacred, in a sense. And there's lots of examples of this uh, that you, I can share some more with you later, but let me just give you one example. This is a picture from the Temple of Karnak in Egypt, and it's from about the same time, around the same time that the Genesis 2 was being you know, circulated. And this is a picture that we have. In the middle, you can kind of see there's this person within a tree. That's King Seti I. And he's seated in the middle of the tree, and Thoth, one of the gods, is crowning him and giving him a scepter and writing his name on the leaves of the trees. So this is an image for a king's role as a god, and he's giving life to the land through sacred trees. So it's just an example of how people connected kings, priests, uh, and trees together. So trees are sacred spaces in the ancient Near East mentality. And that's clear uh, that the author is referencing that in Genesis 2 from the next sentence. He says, And the tree of life also in the middle of the garden, and the tree of knowing and good and bad. Of knowing, the tree of the knowing of good and bad. So in our picture of Genesis 2, we have now two more elements to add. At the very center, we have these two trees. They occupy a place of prominence, kind of like the hot spot. And if we remember from back a, a couple verses ago, the, the human was moving towards the center, so it's inevitable that they'll probably end up at the tree. So now this is a picture of what's going on in this passage. Verse 10 continues. Now a river went out from Eden to water the garden. So rivers flow downwards. They flow from the top to the bottom, down towards the ocean. And so this is signaling for us, for our picture that we've created, which looks something like this, to go to a 3D picture, something like this. This is a picture from um, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. So what it's saying, actually, is this sacred garden that God has created is on the top of a mountain. And we, again, have to remind ourselves of how ancient people would have saw their place in the world. The place below the waters is a bad place. It's the Tehom, the deep waters, or Sheol, the underworld, where people go when they die. And then God has created this land, this, this land mass. So we're in this kind of middle space. And then up above us is the waters, but up above that is the heavens, where the gods dwell. And so if you go on a mountain on the dry land, it's going to get you closer physically towards the heavens. That's what they thought. And if you ever stand on top of a mountain, you are probably not the tallest thing on that mountain. There are trees on the top of the mountain which are closer to the gods. So trees on top of mountains, these are sacred elements. They're the closest things that we have in this world to the gods. So it's creating this cosmic 
imagery uh, of a mountain being like a temple, a place where the gods and the humans can meet. So they talk about this river that went out from Eden to water the garden, and then from there it says it separated and it became four different rivers. I'm just going to name them. I'm not going to read this whole passage. The Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Now, this seems like a really weird excursus for us if we're reading this passage. Why are these rivers here? Let me just give you three reasons. The first is that rivers are also a source of life. You've got to remember, this is an arid place. So any water source is going to be a source of life and super important. So rivers become symbols of life and blessing in that culture. If you read a little bit ahead in the Bible, Ezekiel, he has this vision of a temple that's lifted up and rivers of water are flowing out from it. And so for us as modern people, we think, oh no, like your foundation has water leakage. That's going to be bad for your building. But what he's actually saying is like this temple has life flowing out from it. It's this picture that starts in Genesis 2 and and reaches all the way up to Jesus who says, you know, your body, if you believe in me, you, you can have living streams come from you. Jesus is referencing this whole story. He's saying you could be a sacred mountain. You could be a temple. You could be a place that blesses the rest of the world. This has always been the vision of the Bible. So this rivers, that's why rivers are so important and they're included in this picture. The second reason is because they give the boundaries, these rivers specifically give the boundaries for ancient Israel's land. If you go and read uh, Genesis 15 later on this afternoon and you chart the, all the places that Abraham has promised land out on a map, you'll see that they, they, uh, they are parallel to these rivers. So I know you're all going to do that this afternoon. Genesis 15 is the passage you want to go to. And then finally, these rivers uh, mark the places that become rival kingdoms for Israel in the story. So Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. They're all places that are by rivers. And so in the biblical mind, in the concept, what they do is they take this river that comes from God, this source of life, And instead of living in covenant with God and blessing the rest of the world, what they do is they take that offer of life and they reject God's wisdom, they live by their own wisdom, and those places become places of bloodshed, places of injustice. They become fake Edens. And so they're marking out a lot of the geography that we have in the rest of the Bible. So this is a bit of the picture that's being painted in this passage, and I wanted to take a few minutes to, to go through it for a couple reasons. First is it gives us perspective on like, what is actually being said here. I think especially if you grew up in, in church and you heard it a lot described in children's stories, you probably have a certain perspective on what Eden is, and this, this gives us maybe more of an adult perspective of what's happening, and it helps us to, to see it slightly differently. The second thing um, that it helps us to do is it helps us understand the broader context into which the story is being written. So it's not just the ancient Israelites who would think of this worldview, this, have this, this perspective. It would be everybody, all of their neighbors. It's written into, uh, it's the code that everybody agreed upon. They would see exactly this, something like this when they read Genesis 2. But we don't get that because we're just people reading it 3,000 years Later, So we have a different perspective. It would be like if the ancient people, someone from the ancient Near East came here today and we showed them this picture. And we were like, what do you think is happening here? Oh, okay. It was switched on me this morning. Um, but it's, it's fair. It's fair. Um, I originally had a picture of a Canucks fan praying. And 
they would be like, oh, this person must be very religious. And I would say, oh, no, they just, they like a mediocre hockey team and they have to resort to prayer. <laughs> this is very uh, apropos of the Oilers uh, start to the year, though. This is, but you don't get this unless you know. Some of you here are like, what is going on in this picture, right? Why is this sad person wearing such bright colors? Um, because you're not, you, you don't, you, you don't know uh, much about hockey, and that's totally fine. But it's the same idea. We approach this story as complete foreigners to the story. And so we have to learn uh, what people would hear and see. It's very helpful to us. And then finally, and maybe most importantly, um, about this picture is that it sets, up, it sets us up to read the rest of the story. Anytime you're reading the rest of the Hebrew scriptures and someone re- mentions a river or a water source, how many important conversations happen at wells? Or someone, all of a sudden, it's like they're meeting under this tree, and you're like, why do they mention the tree? Something's going to happen at that tree. It's, re- it's re- coming back to this. Or how many times does God meet people on mountains or in gardens? These are all signals for us to understand the rest of the story and how it's linked together, that the Bible is meditation literature. It's inviting us to read that story and then go back. And as you do, you will see new things. So that's the geography of the land. Verse 15, let's continue on. Yahweh Elohim took the human and rested him in the garden of Eden to serve and keep, to Abad and Shamar. This is the priestly line. And Yahweh Elohim commanded the human. So these are the first words of God in this story, in this creation narrative. In the first creation narrative, Genesis 1, God speaking all the time, creating. These are the first words God has in Genesis 2. And it's a directive, it's a command. He says, From every tree of the garden you will surely eat, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, you will not eat from it. For on the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So, lots of questions. What's with this tree? What's with the fruit of the tree? Why did God put it there? You know, what does it mean that people will die? Why is Shirley in so much trouble? Um, Sorry, that's a groaner. But once I thought of it, I had to say it. Um, All great questions. We have seven weeks left in this series. And so we're going to explore a lot of this, the test and what happens with this tree. This morning, what I want to do is just focus us in on the second symbol of what trees represent in this story and in the rest of the story of the Bible. So remember, the first symbol of what trees are is that they're sacred spaces. They're places where God will meet with humans. Something will happen there. But the second big theme about trees in the Bible that we're supposed to read forward is that they become places of testing. They become places of testing. We go ahead to the next uh, slide there, Joel. So in the, in the biblical language, the word testing shares a lot of what we think of when we think of testing in uh, English. So we have a lot of teachers here, or people uh, that are, are working um, in education. And so a test is this moment of time where you, you come to it, you come to a test and you pass or you fail. There's something very true and this tree will be very similar But there's also another underlying factor that I really want to point out about what a test is in the Hebrew language. A test in in the Bible also is designed to show what's underneath. It reveals what's true about you at the core level. So I think when we think of a test, at least when I do, what I think of is it tests my knowledge. How much do I know? A biblical test is, is different because it's not testing what you know. It's testing what you truly believe. What will you do with your life? What's underneath? And, and so, like, an example is like this. I could tell you that I'm a fun guy. I'd be like, oh, I'm a lot of... See, some of you are already laughing. You know where this test is going. And so you might say, oh, like, let's give you a test. You had some free time yesterday. What did you do with it? I'd be like, I read a book about sociology. You'd be like, 
you're not a fun guy. I failed the test of what happened. So this passage is doing something very similar. It's showing what's true, what's underneath, not just what we say. And that's really important for us. Um, as we, you know, it's, it's saying that you're a Christian in Canada right now doesn't like get you a promotion. Okay, maybe unless you work at like a Christian school or something. Um, but it's not, it's not a great time in public to be a Christian. But we still have some of that where we, we would say things. I, I believe in God. You know, I come to church. And these, these trees become very important moments for us. I think there's something really important for us here to hear. What is, the, what is true about you and I? The trees provide moments of testing. They reveal what we actually, I will say, use the word believe about this Yahweh Elohim, about ourselves as people and about our place in the world. So, we're going to look at two parts of this test this morning. Again, we're going to carry this, this conversation forward into the future. But I just want to look at two things about why this tree is a test. So here's the first one. When many of us hear this command or we think about this passage, what we, we remember about this passage is the negative. So if you were to summarize what is being said in Genesis 2, you might say something like this. God says, don't eat from this tree. That's the big idea that comes across. And that is true, but that's actually not what God says. Specifically, that's not what God says first. Here's what he says first. From every tree of the garden, you will surely eat. Every tree. Everything, every single tree in this garden that I've created for you, you will surely eat. And this word in in the Hebrew here, surely, is actually the word eat. So it's just saying, from every tree in the garden, you will eat, eat. It's like your grandma, when you go to her house, and she's like, oh, you're so skinny. Eat, 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 eat. This is the idea that came to my mind this year, and, or this, this week as I was preparing. And I was thinking of my grandma, who would do this, and my Chinese grandpa, too and basically any older Chinese person that I visited their house. They're just like, eat, eat. This is why I have no portion control. Eat, eat, eat. There's so much encouragement to eat. And what it comes from, at least in my family, is my, my dad specifically didn't have a lot of food as a kid. One of the biggest ways he showed love to me was that there was always enough rice and always enough meat on the table. And so he would be eat, eat, eat all the time. And that's what God is saying here. You know, if you live, remember what Osborne says, if you live in an arid desert, you don't have a lot of fruit around. What God is doing is he's creating a garden with all this fruit, and he's saying, eat, eat, eat every tree. Please eat from it. So this passage actually doesn't start with a prohibition. It starts with permission. It starts with an invitation. It starts not in lack, but it starts in absolute abundance. It's a gift from God to be enjoyed. And it points to a God who, by his very nature, is someone who provides and is generous towards us. And so why is that part of the test of the tree? Well, the next part of the verse is going to prohibit something. God is going to say, don't eat from this one tree. But I think our attitude about the prohibitions of God, the things that he says no to us about, is directly correlated to if we see him as a God of abundance, a God who first provides permission to do many other things. In other words, do you hear from God, don't, don't eat from this tree? Or do you hear a God who says something like this, everything, eat, 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 but just not this one. Those are two very different things, and we react to them as people in very different ways. And they point to a God, how we, like behind that, we point to a, a way that we see God. Do you see God as a cosmic killjoy? As someone who's just coming to say no to you all the time. Maybe more like one of my grandparents. 
No, be quiet all the time. That was his vibe. Or like the grandmother, eat, 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 eat. There's so much for you, but just not this one. They're very, very different, and they provide a a test. And I think that that's a good challenge for us from Genesis 2. Because there are trees in our lives. Every single one of us, if you're going to follow Jesus, there are places where he's going to come to you, and he's going to say there are things that we can't do. How do you react to them? I'll just give you one example from my own life. For me, financial generosity is a tree. Because I'm, uh, I might think of myself, or let me put it this way, God commands us, very similar to how he does in Genesis 2, to be generous with our funds, with the money that we have. And I may think of myself as a very generous, easygoing person, but the tree of, of financial generosity is a test for me. It shows what's truly underneath, that I'm much more of a stingy person. And it's very easy for me to hear God saying, oh, I have to give this money away. And we don't have enough, you know, come on, God, housing is expensive in Vancouver. How can I give money away? And focus only on the negative. And I know for some of us, well, probably for many of us, that inflation that's recently happened has probably turned the tree of generosity from a little small fern into a redwood in our lives. It's a test. And I'll tell you, for, for me, a person like me, to place that command that God has, which he does have, to be generous with our money in order to advance God's kingdom. If I put that, if I just see it as a prohibition, I might give, but I'm going to give with like very, very um, stingy vibes in my heart. It's not going to be a good look. Unless I place it within the larger story of what God is saying. When I look at it this way, that everything I have is God's. My life is God's. This breath is God's. Any kind of work that I can do is a gift from God. That this moment, this time that we have together where we can come and worship, this is God's. Every dollar that I've ever made is a gift from God. And here's the good news. He only wants a little bit of it back. He lets me keep so much. That is a completely different vibe for me. It's just placing it within the story. So what about for you? What are the trees in your life where you see God's command as a burden because you haven't placed them within the larger story of what's happening? That's why trees are testing. So Yahweh Elohim gives generously, but then he does prohibit something. Let's look at the verse 17 here. It says, From the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, you will not eat from it. For the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now we're going to leave off the question about what does this word die mean for a couple weeks from now. So today what I want to do is I want to just help us understand how this was understood in its ancient context and then try to pull it forward for us today a couple thousand years later. So we have to back out of our cultural moment here in order to hear what is being said to us because the Bible is written for us, but it wasn't written to us. So I'm going to enlist some help from a, a Jewish commentator named Nahum Sarna. He's going to help us understand what original people would have heard here. Anyone who reads the Enuma Elish which is one, another one of the creation narratives that was being circulated at that time. Anyone who reads the Enuma Elish is struck by the moral indifference of the gods. And much the same is true of the Homeric epics. This is the Greek stories about the Greek gods. The pagan worshiper had no reason to believe that the decrees of his god must be necessarily just, any more than he could be convinced that society rested upon a universal order of justice. According to the pagan worldview, the fate of man was not determined by human behavior. The gods were innately capricious. That word capricious means that they would just change their mind. They couldn't be trusted. So they might tell you something, but they're not necessarily going to follow through. 
The gods of that time, of the other stories, were innately capricious. So any absolute authority was impossible. This capriciousness of the gods is diametrically opposed to the biblical view. The God of creation is not at all morally indifferent. On the contrary, morality and ethics constitute the very essence of his nature. The Bible presumes that God operates by an order which man can comprehend, and that a universal moral law has been decreed for society. Thus, the idea embedded in Genesis of one universal creator has profound ethical implications. It means that the same universal sovereign will that brought the world into existence continues to exert itself thereafter, making absolute, not relative demands upon man expressed in the categorical imperatives, thou shalt and thou shalt not. Here's what he's saying here. In the creation narratives of the rest of the world, the stories that helped people understand who they were and the place that they occupied and how they should act, there were stories, most of them had many different gods, And these gods were very powerful, but they were always changing. They were changing their minds. So you couldn't trust what they said, but you were at their whim. So in Genesis 2, what we see is a very different kind of story. We see a creation narrative, a story that tells us about who we are and what this God is like. But he's not a God who is... is First of all, there's only one God. So there's no power struggle between all the different gods. And this God wants, wants to communicate with us. He longs to tell us who he is and how how we should act, what we should do and what we should not do. And it is, and he is, sorry, as it says over and over again in the Hebrew Scriptures, faithful. He will do what he says he's going to do. And so in that context of these two different kinds of, of gods, these two different kinds of stories, this creation narrative would absolutely be celebrated. This command from God would be absolutely celebrated. And the God behind it would be worshipped because people would be thinking, man, this God knows what he wants, and he's kind enough to communicate that to us, all we have to do is just do what he asks. And, and we will be able to be blessed. And so that's absolutely a mind-blowing and crazy idea for the first people who would read this command from God. Now, let's pull it, try to pull it forward. Our context is, is what I would call slightly different. We don't think of ourselves as having two different external sources of authority. So we don't think of ourselves as having these gods who can't be trusted and we don't want to do what they say and then this God who commands and is faithful. Uh, Those are two external sources of authority. How we look at our world today, I would say, in general, in this city is like this. There are two sources of authority, but the first one is an internal source of authority. It's inside of me. And so there's a voice inside of me that I need to listen to It's a voice of freedom. It's calling me to throw off the shackles of restraint and to become truly human. To let whatever's inside here blossom and grow. That's the first source of authority. And the second source of authority, then, is any external source of authority. So it might be families or corporate jobs. Boo, the worst. Just keep me down. Or religion and God. These sources of authority are not life-giving. Instead, they reduce me. They don't let me blossom. They reduce me, and they make me a clone and, rep- and repress my truest instincts to become human. In fact, they're, they're often dehumanizing to me. So to put it into Genesis 2 terms, here's what uh, I think this creates. If God wants to give a command and he says, don't eat the fruit, the only way that I will listen to that command is if it, if it coheres with what's inside of me here. If I already agree with that, if I was like, jokes on you, God, I don't even like fruit. 
if that was a McDonald's tree, maybe we'd have some words, but it's not. So, but it's, it's like the, the source of authority is here. And any time God wants to come and say something to us, no, we see that as he is the oppressor and I'm the oppressed. I'm the victim. And it makes it very, very difficult to hear God's words. And, and so here's what I want to point out this morning. We're very critical of the voice of God and any external authority, and I think there's some real good to that. And there's, I, it's very understandable in our context. We don't have to look too far back in our history to understand that the voice of God's authority has been used to do some terrible things. What I do want to say, though, is that we're very uncritical of the voice in here. We just assume, oh, of course, I would listen to that voice. And that's what I want to talk about today. But it is hard to talk about it from the Bible, and it is hard to talk about it, I would even say, as a pastor. So what I want to do is enlist some help this morning. I want to introduce you to a guy named Mark. I think you say his last name, Greif. Uh, it's like grief, but the E and the I are backwards. So I'm going to say, I might say grief. Uh, you know who I'm talking about. Um, he's not a Christian, but he wrote one of my favorite books of last year called Essays Against Everything, which I think, like, man, that just mm, speaks to me somehow. Um, <laughs> It's, uh, but also, he wrote, and one of the essays is about one of my favorite bands of all time, Radiohead. Um, so here's what he writes about Radiohead. This will get us, it's going to be a little bit of a, a long road, but we're going to get there, okay? Radiohead belongs to rock. They play rock music. And if rock has a characteristic subject, as country music's subject is small pleasures and hard times or getting by, and rap's subject is success and competition or getting over, the subject for rock music must be freedom from constraint or getting free. So this is where it kind of starts to come together. So rock music is about freedom. And if we look back maybe to previous generations, you, know, you can think of like Twisted Sister, we're not going to take it, right? That kind of vibe. Or moving a little bit forward but not too far forward is Muse, right? Here's one of their songs. They will not force us. They will stop degrading us. They will not control us. We will be victorious. So come on, if you know the song, right? It's like this, every single, this is basically every single one of their songs, okay? And this freedom song has now bled into pop music. Basically, any pop music that you hear, it has this freedom narrative running through it. Don't let people keep you down. Let me just give you one example, the Jonas Brothers. It's only human. You know that it's real. So why would you fight or try to deny the way that you feel? It's this exact same narrative. Don't, the, the truest human thing you can do is allow this flower inside of you to bloom. And that fits with what it, our vision of, of freedom. Throw off the shackles of restraint, and life will be a party. The world will be amazing. Or as the Jonas Brothers say, you could dance in the living room, love with an attitude, and get drunk to an 80s groove. Party. So, what about Radiohead? Here's what Greif writes. The first notable quality of Radiohead's music is that even though their topic may be freedom, their technique involves the evocation, not of the feeling of freedom, but of unending low-level fear. The dread in their songs is so detailed and so pervasive that it seems built into each line of lyrics and into the black or starry sky of music that domes it. So Radiohead, even though they're playing within this field of freedom, they're using their music to critique freedom. They're saying that maybe this idea that we should just throw everything off and, and life would be a party, it also creates, maybe it creates some freedom, but it also creates a situation of fear and dread and many other things. And this is true, he says, of both the music, especially the latter music of, of Radiohead, but also the lyrics. So I was going to describe the music to you 
and talk through the lyrics, which would be like the most boring thing. Instead, what I decided to do is I, we're going to listen to a song, okay, a Radiohead song. And I had to choose this one. It's called Fake Plastic Trees. We're talking about trees. We had to go with this song. It's from their early catalog. But here's what I want you to do. We're going to listen to it together, and the lyrics will be up on the screen. I want you to listen, and I'm going to ask you to interact with me after, so this is fair warning. You're going to have to say something, okay? Um, what did the lyrics and the music say? What, how are they critiquing freedom? What, what do the lyrics and the music say about this moment that we live in and, and what we experience as humans, okay? So, are we ready? Awesome. i 
thinking about like walk-up music. Yeah, that's my walk-up song. Okay, what did you hear? What does it say about this moment that we live in, this song? Sorry? Should you raise your hands? You could just speak out. It's okay. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Raise your hand. Yes, David. Okay. Yes. Oh, yes. In the back. Thank you. Fantastic. We have one. Yeah. It can be exhausting. Yeah. If you, if, if, if you are trying to get out what's in here, you are constantly performing. And it wears you out. Anybody else? Yeah? Feel worn out a little bit by life? I was watching Rhonda signing. Rhonda, how do you do where it wears you out? How did you do that line? Yeah? yeah? Next time someone says, how are you? <laughs> right? We learned some sign language today. Fantastic. Yeah, it wears you out. It's just repeating it over and over again. Good. What else? What else do you hear in this song? You may know what you want now, but over time, you're not Yeah, exactly. Time changes, and not only might you change, and that's one of the big critiques of this freedom. Which, if I'm just speaking for myself, which voice do I listen to in here? There's not just one, which, like, you know, you don't have to take me to the hospital. But you understand? You know what I'm saying? Which me am I listening to? And then we change. And the world changed. That beautiful line about the person who did surgery on girls in the 80s, but gravity always wins. <laughs> gravity always wins. And you will change, and the world will change. Yeah. Good. What else? The fix is temporary. The fix is temporary. Yeah. How so? Is there a line that stood out? Well, that gravity always wins. Gravity always wins. And plastic, 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 right? Yeah, if you listen to their music, they, he, he used that word poly, I don't even know what it was, polyestrine, somebody might, who's like a chemical engineer might know. They use these words in their, in their songs all the time to talk about this, this world that we live in. It's a plastic world, actually. It's funny, the first, the first lyrics are something like she buys a, a plastic watering can for a fake plant in a flake world. Yeah, I, I can relate. Yeah, any others? One or two more, anyone? Ooh, John, getting deep. Okay, what do you what do you mean? Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. If you have a lack of sense of like, then you have to create who you are. From ex nihilo would be the words that we use from nothing, right? And there's an exhaustion to that, and also a big question mark to that. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. 
I, I feel like I could, you know, I, if I run, I might blow through the ceiling. Fascinatingly, that part of the song is the, is the it's like gets loud. And another theme of theirs is what happens in, in this moment in time is if you have to create yourself, you always want to run. And it's, it says at the end, if, if I could be who you wanted all the time, I'm performing, and relationships become very, very hard, don't they? Because we always know someone could run. They're creating themselves. And, and he says at the very end, uh, if I could be who you wanted all the time, we're performing for other people. But that moment of the song where he's saying that becomes the most violent part of the song. And this is another part of their lyrics they, they often talk about. If freedom is inside, if that is ever, if that is ever threatened, what will happen is, is violence. Right? Karma police. What's the line from um, karma police that I'm thinking of? Um, this is what you get if you mess with us. There's a, there's a threat of violence if you come against any internal who people are, okay? So, moral of this sermon, go home and listen to some Radiohead. Here's what I think they're, think they're saying, but both Graf and Radiohead are trying to say. We actually all have creation narratives. We all have stories that run our lives, that tell us who we are and what is God, what's the most important, where we're going in the world. And one of the narratives that propels us into this world is this narrative, this narrative of freedom, this narrative of that let out what's inside of you is the most important and most human thing that you could do. And there is good to this. There is true good to this. I'm not saying that there isn't. But it's also created a fake plastic trees world, is what Radiohead is saying, what Grafe is saying, and I think what the Bible is critiquing as well. That it's okay to critique the Bible but also to critique this voice inside of you, that this is the ultimate source of freedom. And it's also opening the door to say that maybe a God who offers boundaries to us is actually not trying to just clamp down on you, but trying to release and to to let you truly become human. Listen to what James K.A. Smith says. Once you've realized that you need someone, not you, Once you realize that you need someone that's not you, you can look at constraint differently. What used to look like walls hemming you in start to look like scaffolding holding you together. If freedom used to look like the no-obligation bliss of self-actualization, once that unfettered freedom has become its own bondage, you look at obligations at the places where God says no as a restraint that gives you purpose, a center, the rebar of identity. That's what a beautiful statement the rebar of identity. We might be surprised at how many people are hoping someone will give them boundaries, the gift of restraint, channeling their desires and thereby shoring up a sense of self, allowing you to become who you are. The places where God says no to us are trees. They provide a test because they reveal not what we say, but what's true in the innermost sense of of who we are and the stories that we live in. What are the places where God says no to you that are trees? What what might they reveal about who you are and who we are in the stories that we live in? I'm going to close with this. By putting trees in in the middle of the garden, the authors of Genesis are trying to say that there's something that's key to being human about these trees, that the moments of, of testing are going to be moments that we all face as human beings. And they're sacred moments, but they're also sacred of testings. They're moments where we can partner with God or where we can go our own way. 
And so the question, just in closing, what, how do we prepare ourselves for these trees? And what do we do when we inevitably fail the test at the tree? And again, we'll talk more about this. But for today, I want to just move, as we move into a time of response, I want to fast forward in the biblical story a little bit to another person who faces a tree in the garden. And that person is Jesus, and the tree is the cross, and he's facing his death. And by choosing that tree, Jesus shows us, rather than commands us, who God is. He shows us the true nature of a God who is not a God who's just holding out on us. Just saying no, no, no to us all the time, but says, I give you my absolute best. I give you my son. And he shows us what true freedom looks like by not doing whatever he wants or living his best life now, but letting go of his life in obedience to the Father and entrusting that through his death, God will make something beautiful and new and a new life. And it's Jesus who on this tree offers us grace for the many, many times that you and I fail at the trees of testing in our lives, that we don't have to simply hear that you will surely die, that you will die, die, that you are doomed. But rather, when the Holy Spirit convicts, we receive the ministry of Jesus, offering us grace, offering us forgiveness, and calling us to turn back, turn away from our sin, and run back towards the Father, and learn once again what it means to be human with the gift of constraint. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we close this portion uh, of looking at your word, we want to just thank you for what you offer us here, the picture of what it means to be human, and the picture of who you are as a God who guides us, who communicates with us, and who is faithful. As we move into this time of response, as we come forward for communion, as we give, as we sing, uh, as we um, pray with one another, we ask that you would be present with us, that you would lead and guide us. For those here who are at trees this morning, may you minister to them, and we ask that you would uh, help them to choose life, to choose you. So we pray these things together in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.